Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week, we have a special episode for you. First, we are talking to Republican Senator from Nebraska, Ben Sass, about his views on the future of Afghanistan, the Biden administration's handling of it. And in case you've never heard from Ben Sass before, he is a uh, He's a thinker. So I've got some questions, some bigger picture questions for him as well at the end. And then Steve will have a special conversation with Peter Weiner. He was a speechwriter during the Reagan administration, the H.W. Bush administration, and the speechwriter for George W. Bush on September 11th. Steve is going to talk to him about what that day was like inside the White House. Right in, Senator, we are thrilled to have you on this podcast. Uh, let's start with Afghanistan at this moment, looking forward, not what they could have done differently, you know, yesterday, two weeks ago, six months ago. Moving starting today, what do you think the Biden administration should do? Well, I mean, there's kind of no way for them to build a forward looking plan without explaining what they thought their plan was in the past, because obviously in a world where um, the U.S. is not the world's beat cop, but we sure as heck have been the world's detective. And that's been good for the world. And that's been good for us. And if you want to even be a little more real politique about it, um, economically, we're 4% of global population. And, you know, between 22 and 24% of global GDP, the U.S. has benefited from an international system. And it's really difficult to imagine any bigger uh, stupid move to shoot yourself in the foot as a global leader and demonstrate to everybody you don't want to be a superpower than what Team Biden has done. And so I think their claim is they were doing this you know, bumper sticker BS nonsense, the same as the last administration, um, talking about forever wars, which is not what was actually happening there. Um, but they were claiming the best construction you could put on it is this was to enable a pivot to Asia and to the long term, you know, technology and diplomatic race we face with the Chinese Communist Party. But it's clear that they've radically weakened the U.S. and strengthened China by their move in Afghanistan. So if you want to think either counterterrorism uh, proper, if you want to think um, about the long term existential threat we face with the Chinese Communist Party over the next decade or so, or if you want to think even slightly more theoretically about what the U.S. role in the world is, all of those require the administration to offer an accounting for the just stupid, stupid set of moves they've made in Afghanistan. And that's before you even get to the human angst and pain of our allies and of all the Americans who've been left behind. So there's a lot that I would like to hear us talking about as a nation about what American foreign policy and security strategy look like over the next decade. But I can't speak to the Biden administration until they own some of, I mean, I'm never going to be able to speak to the Biden administration, but I mean, I can't hypothesize about what they should do from here until they offer some accounting of what they thought they were doing, because this is like reverse gymnastics scoring at degree of difficulty and at level of execution. They're like zero times zero. Uh, does your political party have a position on Afghan refugees? I feel like it is a little all over the place. Well, first of all, we don't really have political parties in America. 
Um, all we have right now is, you know, whoever the last guy in either party who won is and whoever wants to grandstand with performative theater on cable news and Twitter tonight. Right. So I don't I don't think we really have operative political parties. So I, I can speak a little more effectively for what I think the American tradition is or what conservatism should reasonably say or what prudence about keeping your word would mean. But I, I definitely can't speak for any coherent position in the Republican Party. But as for me, um, it seems pretty clear that a nation um, that's to be trusted has to be a nation that's trustworthy. And that means you keep your commitments. And there are lots and lots of folks in Afghanistan who've been left behind. We should also obviously talk about the Americans who've been left behind. But your question was about the refugees. And so there are a lot of people and their families who've been left behind to whom we made very precise, particular promises. And the promise was something like this. If you drive for U.S. troops and diplomats in harm's way, if you're a translator for us in a a battlefield situation, if you've been in a bunker with us, know that we would never leave you behind. America made some stupid moves in 1974, 75 in Saigon, but we would never do anything like that again. Because when we give our word to someone and you risk your life to fight for Americans' freedom to take the battle over there so we don't have to have another 9-11-like attack here, you can be sure that America will stand by its word. That was the commitment that's been given um, over four consecutive presidential administrations, and frankly, more significantly than who was at the top of Article 2 during those times. It was who were our troops over the course of the last 19 and a half years as we held a whole bunch of terrorist attacks at bay? Who were the troops who were making these kind of pledges? And those people want to keep their word. I mean, I think the, the national screaming version of media doesn't really understand how deeply troops believe that it's essential to have kept our word. I, I, I've basically not heard from a single man or woman in uniform or veteran uh, man or woman in uniform who served in Afghanistan who think that anything that we've done in Afghanistan now, um, the last months, but especially the last weeks, makes any sense. Like, I mean, all of them think there's a, a real question about whether or not their sacrifices were in vain, but also the fact that they themselves made pledges that they thought they were morally binding themselves to a nation that was, of course, big and firm and resolute. And and they don't see that now. And they're they're angry because they should be angry because we gave our word and now we're not keeping our word. And that's the choice of, of cowardice and dishonor that President Biden has chosen for us. Steve? Yeah, just to accentuate that point, I I think it's hard sometimes for people to appreciate just what level of a betrayal this is uh, to go back on our promises like this and how long it is likely to stick with us. In the lead up to the war in Iraq, uh, the fall of 2002, I went to Dearborn, Michigan and interviewed um, a number of Iraqi Uh, expatriates and was in the process of interviewing someone who was, I think, in his early mid-20s. And I asked him about uh, what he remembered from the first Gulf War, which was when he was a a boy of, I don't know, I'm forgetting the exact age, seven or eight, something like that. And he answered my question by reciting word for word what George H.W. Bush had said in encouraging the Kurds to rise up. And then he said, and you left us stranded. I mean, he he recited the entire passage word for word. 
these things don't disappear overnight. And while you know, I think you have uh, in the Biden administration an eagerness to kind of shrug these things off, they're likely to to stick around for a long time. Beyond what what happens with the the individuals in Afghanistan that that we've betrayed, I, I'm interested in your assessment of what this means for our our alliances, uh, for our relationships. And Joe Biden came to office and said he was going to be the one to restore American diplomacy, um, to to bring America back. And it seems to me we've we've heard them say this out loud that not only is that not happening, they're questioning relationships with the United States. When we hear that from a prominent British politician or or a, a senior member of the German government, is that because we're hearing individual politicians making statements based on their own immediate political self-interests in their own political context? Or are they speaking for a broader um, set of concerns from our allies? Oh, definitely the latter. I mean, it, it is incredibly broad. Um, the, uh, I won't violate the confidences here because obviously since I sit on the Intelligence Committee, it, it's important that I'm able to consult with lots of people, um, both in the Five Eyes uh, and beyond in terms of who we share intel with and inside the U.S. military. Um, but I've had both of those kinds of conversations in the last 48 hours. So a, a top 10 uh, U.S. general, one of the 10 most powerful people um, in DOD world, uh, said to me a day and a half ago, he said, it, was, it would have been inconceivable to me six months ago that the U.S. would be at the far left side of NATO. And he says, out of NATO right now, there are one or two, maybe three countries you could say are with us or to the left of us. But in terms of hawkishness, everyone else in NATO is far, far to the right of us. And they're disgusted by what we have done. And they doubt NATO. I mean, his, his framing on it was they doubt NATO more than in the last administration um, where President Trump obviously wasn't a, a big defender of NATO. This was something he and I fought about in private many, many times. Um, but they didn't think that he spoke, other NATO nations didn't think that President Trump spoke for the United States as a whole. And now when these other countries see what the Biden administration has actually done to NATO, there's there's a massive crisis of confidence inside the whole organization, both um, militarily and politically. Um, and, and I mean, maybe moving from the general's side to the politician side, um, I was in Ukraine a couple days ago. Um, obviously, some contra Putin uh, conversations that a, a number of our we and our allies are having. And um, I had spoken with a bunch of um, European defense and foreign ministers in the context of, of my trip uh, headed toward uh, Kiev. And in fact, I'll just read you this because I, I just have it in my phone because I sent it back to my team um, talking with a, a very senior European official who, you know, American public opinion would assume that a person with this profile would be way to the dovish side of the United States. Uh, and the senior European official said to me, I, I only happened to have the quote because I was so, you know, jaw dropped by it that I, I typed it up as soon as the meeting ended to send it back to my team just to store it. He said, quote, most countries around the world are now agreeing with China that the democracies might be at the end of our history because democracies depend on shared values and there aren't many shared values. And it's obvious that in your country, meaning the U.S. specifically, you're not willing to fight for your values. 
There's just not enough depth to anyone shared, anything shared. Afghanistan proves it. We, and he's meaning his country here, a different NATO country, we have invested a lot in the fight against the Taliban over the last 20 years, but we're now going to go back to a world where we're going to have a stronger Taliban, despite the fact that they haven't changed in any way whatsoever. We democracies are simply not willing to fight against the Taliban or really to fight for anything. It sure looks like China might be right that democracies are weak. It's obviously the case that China is rising across the globe. Most countries are increasingly thinking they should bet on them. And they believe, they being China, they believe that they face only one genuine threat, and that's their own digital giants. And so what China will be focused on now is reining in their digital giants because they recognize that American democracy is being ripped apart, both by the companies themselves, he means the tech companies, but also by the habits they produce in the populace. In our country, we want to resist China, but we now know after American leadership in Afghanistan that we clearly would not be willing to go to war to do it, close quote. Well, that kind of sums it up. That touches on so much that you're specifically interested in, the shared value uh, question in particular. Do you think that Americans have a shared value they would fight for? Sure, but I don't know how that uh, works its way through our politics right now. I mean, I think we know that a lot of evening cable programming, which isn't really watched by very many people, I think this is such an important thing for us to underscore. Um, You know, the most watched cable news shows in America over the last decade kind of bounce around between uh, Hannity and and Tucker on the one hand and on MSNBC. It's, you know, been Rachel Maddow more than anything else over the last decade. Um, But we're usually talking about three and a half million people and two to two and a half million people at whatever high water MSNBC show is, which is another way of saying 1.1% and like seven tenths of 1% of a nation of 330 million people. But it becomes the feedback loop on the people who work in politics. So I think, I think we're having a massive crowd out of the middle in terms of uh, attention and engagement, which is more fundamental than the crowd out of the middle ideologically. Obviously, I'm on the right end of the political ideological spectrum and, and by voting record. And that crowd out, we know well, right? Like you can look at Pew and, and Gallup polling that in the mid-90s, 26-ish percent of Americans thought of themselves as moderates. Um, and they were slightly higher propensity voters than people to the right and left of them. Today, 7% of Americans think of themselves as moderates and they're lower propensity voters. So that crowd out is obvious, but I don't think that's the most important crowd out. I think the crowd out, the pinch that matters is the middle brow crowd out. If you've got kind of a Y axis, if, if X was ideology from you know far left, center left, center, center right, whatever the, the right is going to be called, that crowd out is, is on the X axis. But on the Y axis, if you've got political engagement, you've got addiction at the top and kind of healthy middle brow Eisenhowerian, you know, one sheer for politics stuff in the middle, which is what a republic needs to live. Um, and then you've got political disengagement at the bottom. We've got an evaporation at the middle because of our media consumption habits. And so only the addicts get served anything in politics. Normal people feel like they don't fit here, and so they check out. And so I, 
So I certainly think there are things Americans would fight for, but it's not exactly clear what the second and third term uh, cycles and loops are to get those people any representation in politics, because mostly politics is performative for the very small share of people, uh, you know, single digit percentage. Sometimes it bumps up to 12 to 14 percent of Americans paying attention to politics. Um, But in general, what's happening is performance as substitute community and anger and tribe and religion um, and those people are not going to be a good bellwether for what the general median of the public thinks is worth investing in. And right now, the Forever Wars BS, you know, the bumper sticker of Forever Wars when we were not in a forever war. We haven't had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan for a decade plus. Um, the choice wasn't zero versus 150,000 troops. Uh, it was 8,000 that were successfully decapitating terror organizations and preventing people who are bin Laden wannabes but don't have bin Laden's name ID because they never took down a World Trade Center. We've been preventing those kind of attacks. But right now, the forever war bumper sticker of the last administration and now this administration created a feedback loop to the 6% or 8% of screaming Twitter types who are not a good bellwether for how a republic survives. But do you think that getting beyond the performative politics and the people who respond to it, there is a, that would be support among the broader uh, U.S. populace for a longer term U.S. presence in Afghanistan along the lines of what you described? Well, it would have it would we would have needed to make the case for it or we have to you know bounce from curb to curb after the next terrorist attack. But let's, let's first just say something clear about Afghanistan future focus. And then maybe we can fight a little bit. I don't know that the, the three of us are going to argue about it. But um, over the last uh, 19 plus years how we failed to explain to the American people what we were doing in Afghanistan. We were stunningly successful in our mission in Afghanistan. We were uh, calamitously failing in terms of explaining to the American people what we were actually doing. But let's look future for just a second. So there are four or five terror groups who are planning to try to get some territory in what we call Afghanistan, but it's not really a country that goes all the way to the perimeters of its borders the way healthy countries around the world do. We have a bunch of terror organizations who are going to try to set up safe havens to do Al-Qaeda-like 9-11 type planning for future attacks. Now, there's obviously inside jihadist Islam, there's a divide between near enemy and far enemy theories. And so some of these terror groups are mostly going to want to hit their near neighbors. They're not going to try to uh, cross the Atlantic Ocean. But there are terror groups that aspire to uh, kill innocents and to do cataclysmic attacks uh, on behalf of their caliphate aspirations. And Lots of those groups are going to be successful in ways that have not been undone over the course of the last couple of years. What they've been is sequentially uh, decapitated. And so we have left Americans in Afghanistan. We have hostage-like situations developing right now. We have um, you know, a new administration rising in Kabul that includes people with uh, seven and, and eight figure, I think there's a $10 million bounty on one of them in the Haqqani network, folks going into the government that have been involved in massive terror plotting in the past. This is like just deciding to recreate 1998 to 2001 um, ungoverned spaces on speed because you inject all this extra weaponry into it. So I think we are going to um, 
be going back in some form into Afghanistan at some point because we know what these groups uh, aspire to do and we know that we've taken away our capacity to, to hurt them and to decapitate them. The over the horizon uh, nonsense that the administration likes to use or all the, you know, the crazy um, Pelagian worldview nonsense about how the Taliban wants to turn over a new leaf so they'll be respected in a French restaurant somewhere. That nonsense isn't true. President Biden is, you know, was fond for a long time of saying, um, what was his phrase? Uh, Bin Laden is dead and GM is alive. Well, what's actually happening right now is that Al-Qaeda is alive and they're using our trucks to drive around and hunt our allies. That's what's actually happening. The mission isn't over in Afghanistan. American citizens aren't out. Our Afghan partners aren't out. Um, The Taliban is not going to root out the type of terror groups that want to plot from there. So we're going to have to make a case to the American people, hopefully before the next giant terror attack. But after the terror attack, the public's opinion will definitely be back. So the question is, why didn't we do the right thing to explain to the American people why a asset light forward footprint was the most cost effective way to defend American interests? I'm both an idealist and a realist on this stuff, because at the end of the day, there is lots of positive synergy uh, between civil society that wants to root out some of this stuff and the fact that when we root out this stuff, lots of humans can then go about living their lives. But I, I think idealism is American foreign policy's best realist tool and vice versa. But just at a straight realist argument for why we were doing what we were doing there, um, we were incredibly effective at preventing people like bin Laden from being effective themselves and therefore for becoming a household name. We, I'll pull up here, but you know, 8,000 troops is what we had uh, in late 2020 there. And by the way, even after the last administration on their way out negotiated to and then actually cut troop levels to 2,500, it was simply not true what President Biden, incoming President Biden, got away with telling the media over and over again, and they just carry his water, that there was no status quo around 2,500. It is true that 2,500 was a little too few to be able to secure what we needed to secure and to provide the kind of air cover we needed for our assets operating on the ground, our, our intel officers and some of the drone capabilities we needed. But it was also true that even if the U.S. number were only at 2,500 instead of 8,000, there were a lot of NATO allies who were willing to flow in that 5,500 Delta number of missing troops if the U.S. stayed down at 2,500. The mission still could have had the same level of support because there was enough NATO willingness to do that until the Biden administration decided to pull the rug out from under those people. We have 35 45 and 50,000 troops across uh, South Korea, Japan, and Germany. Are we today at forever wars in those places? No, we're actually doing smart frickin' military planning. That's what the administration decided not to do, is have any smart military planning and instead just cut off our own eyes and ears on the ground where our intelligence agents were doing great, great work. Why, why did we do this? I mean, this started in the Obama administration uh, with with the, the the Bin Laden dead GMs alive. Um, you had sort of a rewriting of of the history of nine eleven and the decade that followed in the lead up to Barack Obama's reelection campaign in twenty twelve. Then you had the Trump administration also. I mean, Barack Obama said repeat, he was he was letting people go from Guantanamo who had been assessed by JTF Gitmo, the, the Joint Task Force in Guantanamo Bay, as high risk uh, 
detainees, some of them now serving at high levels in the new Taliban government in Afghanistan. But he was talking down the threat from jihadists. Donald Trump came in, talked a big game, said he would, you know, bomb the, the expletive out of ISIS and the bad guys, but ultimately made nice with the Taliban. And, and you know, eventually we wound up in a, in a confused place where the Secretary of State was suggesting that the Taliban were going to work alongside uh, U.S. troops to kill al-Qaeda, which was delusional. And now you have the Biden administration saying, as we see Siraj Haqqani, this, this uh, Haqqani network, close uh, al-Qaeda ally, senior Taliban official, take over the Ministry of Interior in the new Taliban-led government with a $10 million bounty on his head by the U.S. government, we see the Biden administration suggesting that the Taliban could still be our new counterterrorism partners, even as they install leading terrorists at the highest levels of their government. Why have we done this for the past decade? Um, so all three of the administrations that you've named have been desperate to deny human nature and the reality reality of jihadism, right? Like, so the, the, the truth is that there are people in the world who really do uh, think they're going to get their 72 virgins for a suicide bombing. And they want to root out people who believe uh, in freedom or just believe in things different than they do. Um, there are obviously lots of people in the movement and even some who are at the edge of, uh, you know, willing to commit suicide attacks for social psychological reasons that I can't fully understand. I can, you know, read and, and come to some understanding of the theological arguments that some of them have. But there are obviously people who are not um, very religiously motivated and yet end up with a cause and a purpose as every 16 and 18 and 20 year old testosterone laden male in the world uh, typically yearns to be a part of a, a tribe and a community and a big quest. So whether it's theological for many of them or only for some of them and for others that it's not, it is just reality that there are a lot of people who believe this stuff right now. And in a world with you know modern air travel and modern telecommunications and modern weaponry uh, and the ability to travel and acquire some of these armaments, there are going to be jihadi attacks and attempts on uh, innocent people and on you know civil society all over the world for decades. And you can't just wish it out of existence. But here's something we ought to say on behalf of Barack Obama and Donald Trump that you can't say on behalf of Joe Biden, which is both of them had these anthropologically naive uh, wishes to just have it all go away, but it wasn't going to go away. And ultimately, reality basically mugged the last two administrations and they listened to some of their advisors. And so they walked away from doing really, really stupid things. They both did stupid things. And some of the people we're talking about, about the uh, prisoner swap that uh, Team Obama agreed to. And now those people are back in their cabinet level officials inside this administration. There's a lot of blame to go around over the course of the last um, 13 years. But both of the last two administrations didn't ultimately pull the trigger to do something insanely stupid. This guy did. And right now, he won't, and his administration won't even give an exact number of the Americans that are left on the ground. They, they won't give the number for the green card holders. They've just, Secretary Blinken, like President Biden, but Secretary Blinken has just lied again and again and again. 
And after the last four years where the media thought it was their job to scream every time there was a lie uh, from Article 2, I don't understand why there isn't some sense of accountability for how often Blinken just makes crap up from one press hit to the next press hit to the next press hit to the next press hit. He went from saying there were 300 Americans left to 250 to 200 to 150. None of it was true. The number was never as low as 300 when they started it. There was no basis for him changing it every five minutes over the course of a half an hour. They excluded green card holders. They won't take questions about it. A week and a half has gone by since they said they were going to have a plan. And now they act surprised that not having any assets on the ground make it difficult to try to support these, these Americans. And they keep talking about things like diplomatic means to get our people back with the bloodthirsty terrorist names you just mentioned. Akani is a terrorist wanted by the FBI for a reason. It's because he's never going to live up to any of his commitments except gutting young girls. That's their commitment. In the regional provinces over the course of the last three and four weeks, some of the stories we've gotten back to those of us who work hard on the, on the intel side, again, I'm not crossing any line, but just, just generically speaking here, this belief that a lot of these uh, Taliban fighters have that they have right to any 12-year-old girl or above who's unmarried. She's theirs as a soldier wife. If they want to take them as part of the harem, there have been cases of uh, some of these Taliban-y, you know, front wave warriors coming through a region telling people, you need to put a mark on the sign over your, your doorway, letting people know whether there's a 12-year-old or above girl that they can take has access to. And if you don't notify them that there's a 12-year-old girl or above that's unmarried that they can take, they might behead you for having failed to volunteer your little girls up to them. That is who the Taliban is. And the administration goes out and again and again and again and again says things like, we're going to partner with these people to try to get the Americans out. They're not serious people. There are a lot of people inside the Pentagon who fought really, really hard. And ultimately, a bunch of moron political addicts at the White House decided they could just snuff out the military advice by saying the American people don't have any fortitude and the attention spans will evaporate. We'll be able to manage the media cycle. This isn't about 24 hour media cycle. This is about Americans. I've been, I've been uh, on the phone yesterday with, with some American missionaries who have some, you know, SIV and, and P1, P2 folks who are converts to Christianity who are going you know, neighborhood to neighborhood, house to house, and room to room inside some of these larger complexes that they're in, hiding from their Taliban pursuers. That's what's actually happening on the ground. And Secretary Blinken and, and uh, Jen Psaki, they, it, it seems like they really believe they can just call an emergency press conference to talk about wildfires in California, and Americans won't care. We'll just forget. We'll go back to playing Candy Crush and getting drunk. That's, that's this administration's view of the American Republic. That actually does lead to my last question, uh, which I saved for last in the hopes that I, um, if I insult you and you hang up, we at least got some good stuff beforehand. So uh, I sort of think of you as uh, David Brooks and Robert Putnam had a baby who turned out that's to be kind of a baby. A weirdo <laughs> nerd who was the captain of the football team at Oxford, but keeps Bud Light in his fridge and went to the U.S. Senate. Um, and now 
has three children of his own who he's raising and who I'm hoping, I'm I'm assuming, frankly, um, are, are probably three like weirdo nerds also. And that you're just like, it's the evolutionary branch of the weirdo nerds, um, which obviously I would like to raise a weirdo nerd. You've written a book uh, that was The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming of Age Crisis and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. So I would like to ask, based on that fabulous book, New York Times bestseller, we'll put it in the show notes so people can see it. Do you have advice for raising a 14-month-old son who can also be a weirdo nerd like you? Uh, I, uh, you, you said some generous things there. Uh, our, our kids, first of all, let's just uh, give their first bullet of their resume, uh, and they're wicked sinners. So we've got a 20 year old daughter, 17 year old daughter and a 10 year old son. And, um, they are, you know, long progeny of Adam. Uh, so there, there's, there's a lot wrong in our parenting philosophy, but my wife and I have also, um, you know, over the course of two and a half decades of marriage and a couple of years of courtship, uh, you know, wrestled through ideas about what do you want for your kids? And it seems like one of the most basic things every American should want for their, for their kids is an understanding of universal human dignity and the idea that humans are pretty dang fascinating and interesting, despite all of our sinfulness, um, the potential for appreciation of truth and beauty and goodness and, and athletic, you know, performance, um, but also repentance and redemption. It's a pretty amazing opportunity to get to be a human in a nation that doesn't think that coercion and force and power are the center of life. What's the center of life is love and, and enthusiasm and entrepreneurialism, entrepreneurialism and neighborliness and friendship and, and, you know, building a better mousetrap and persuading people to buy it or to join your rotary club. Right. So it, it seems to me that what's at, at the heart of the American experiment is the belief that government is just a framework for ordered liberty, freedom from bad stuff. But most of the really interesting stuff in life happens because of freedom to the things you pursue. And so I, I don't have a lot of advice about uh, a 14-month-old. I still remember, uh, what was it? Uh, something about uh, sleep and eat versus snack and nap. The baby-wise stuff that my wife was such a zealot for once upon a time. Uh, sir, you don't sound like you have bags under your eyes, so it must be working out for you. Um, but I, th I think the single, I'll, I'll pull up here, but I think the single weirdest thing about the way we're allowing um, our moment in economic and technological history to warp us is that we don't do a good job of reflecting together as a people. I mean this as 330 million Americans, but I really mean it in each of our peer groups in our neighborhood. And I mean, mostly people you break bread with, not mostly people you, you know, share social media rage with. Um, and that is, we do live at the richest moment, anytime or any place in all of human history, but we need to disaggregate the consumption implications and the production implications because we get to consume more than anybody's ever consumed, but it turns out there's almost no marginal consumption that's going to make the middle-class American much happier. Everybody's already got more than enough stuff. Um, what we don't have is enough purpose, enough productive cause, enough pulling on oars in common with other people. And it turns out the, you know, Mark Andreessen software eats the world hypothesis um, that we are really good as smart humans at routinizing repetitive tasks means that software is eating the world. And that in particular means it's uh, eliminating productive opportunities for work. We, we are going through an experience 
experiment where for the first time in all of human history, the average 40 or 45 or 50 year old isn't going to be able to just keep doing the same thing they've always done until death or retirement. We're going to have to keep learning new ways to serve and to become gainfully employed and to do meaningful work because most jobs are going to be uh, consumed by software. And so I think we're going to have to get a lot better at thinking about what curious adults look like when we're good at lifelong learning. And there's no way you're going to do that primarily with peers when you're 12 or when you're 15 or when you're 17. So I think Melissa and my, Melissa is my wife, um, our aphorism would be to start with huge skepticism of letting your kids be raised um, by peers and by the online world. They need to be raised in an intergenerational context with a heck of a lot of work. So if your 14 month old is sleeping right now, you're failing. Get him into the field. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. Uh, my 14 month old would like the freedom, the liberty to uh, jump off the back of the couch right now. But um, uh, it sounds like, Steve, I should probably just send him over to your house. You're sort of, you know, Camp Hayes over there. That's intergenerational. I mean, we've got a lot of uh, we've got a lot of kids running around. They take care of each other. It, it works out. We've got a little compound with my my brother yeah. and his wife and their kids living close too. So yeah, that's awesome. It's a fun family fun family yeah. arrangement. Well, thank you, Senator, so much for joining us. We know you're on the side of the road somewhere in Nebraska, which actually sounds like a beautiful place to be right now. We're having gorgeous weather over here on the East Coast. It's pretty gorgeous right here right now. So thanks for having me. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. We're here with Pete Weiner, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., a contributing opinion writer to the New York Times, a contributing editor with The Atlantic, the author of The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. Pete was a speechwriter in the Reagan, Bush One, and Bush Two White Houses. And for, for my money, he's one of the most thoughtful observers of American politics today. So we're very pleased to, to have you, Pete. Welcome. Thanks a lot, Steve. It's great to uh, be with you. Thanks for the introduction. Of course. Uh, wanted to talk to you because you uh, were in the Bush administration um, at the White House on September 11th, 2001. And we are recording this Friday morning, September 10th, 2021. So 20 years minus one day from the day of those attacks. And... You and I have talked about this in the past, but I thought it would be real useful um, to, to talk to you about what that day was like and what that day has led to. So let's start at the beginning. Um, you woke up on September 11th, 2001, went into work, and what happened? 
Yeah, it's uh, it was a very very bifurcated day, uh, as you can as you can imagine, um, and and uh, I'll tell you uh, why it was. Um, normally, Mike Gerson, who is a senior speechwriter, would go to the senior staff meetings um, at the White House, which began at uh, seven thirty, and that was always overseen by the chief of staff if if he was in town. And then people representing various departments, vice president, staff of legislative outreach, press office, uh, and so forth and so on. And Mike would represent the um, speechwriting office. Mike had actually stayed home that morning to work on uh, a speech, a communities of character speech. Um, and the reason that he had done that is that we had gotten through two of our main legislative achievements earlier in the year, No Child Left Behind in Education and Tax Cuts. So we were thinking about themes for the fall, and one of them was going to be this idea of communities, which was a theme in, in President Bush's inaugural um, address. So Mike was there. I went to the senior staff meeting, and I remember as the senior staff meeting was unfolding, thinking this is one of the most uneventful days uh, of the White House up to that uh, up to that point. Um, and uh, we, um, I remember having conversations about one of the big topics of the day was the congressional barbecue that we were supposed to host at 5 p.m., I think, at the East Lawn of the White House and other sort of cats and dogs that, that uh, we spoke about. And I would always send Mike an email um, summarizing the senior staff meeting and what it unfolded. And uh, the first sentence of the email that I sent him on September 11th was very little of note happened. And I sent that precisely five minutes before the first uh, trade tower was, was, uh, was hit. Um, when that happened, uh, my office is in the, uh, Eisenhower executive office building. It was on the, on the fourth floor. And which is, which is just to orient our readers, which is right next to the white house. It's a big office building. Most of the people who quote unquote work at the white house actually have offices next door in the, the, what they call the EEOB, uh, right on Pennsylvania Avenue next to the white house. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's uh, it's it's a it's a beautiful ornate building, and uh, the West Wing itself is is relatively small, smaller than most people think when they when they go in. Um, so mine was on the fourth floor, and and so when the first plane hit, like everybody else, I had assumed that you know it, it was a terrible accident. I had gone down actually and gotten a coffee. Basement came up, and then um, a few, I think at nine oh three p a.m. the second. Uh, uh, plane hit hit the tower, and so of course I knew immediately that that uh, something was terribly wrong. So I I called Mike, and Mike was jammed in traffic on I think it was three ninety five. I think he lived in Alexandria at the time. Um, he later reported he left left a voicemail message I think with with Dan Bartlett, who was in the communications department, and he had observed how he had seen us a, a plane. Uh, fly so low. It turned out that was a plane that hit the Pentagon. So uh, what happened then uh, is that, um, so this is a few minutes after after nine, and it's clear what's beginning to unfold. 9.45 a.m., the White House was evacuated. Uh, and uh, I remember the people coming in, uh, people running down the hallways, just trying to, trying to get out. Um, the uh, you know you knew where you were on the totem pole in the White House. Uh, if if you were significant, you ended up in uh, what they call the PIOC, the Presidential Emergency Operations Center. This is a bunker underneath the East Wing of the White House. Um, if you were me, you ended up on the corner of Pennsylvania and Seventeenth Avenue uh, Northwest. And I remember um, 
looking up the sky and how piercingly blue the sky was. That's just a kind of vivid memory for me. It was a beautiful um, sort of fall day. And I remember looking up at the sky and thinking I felt like I was in a movie, but in a movie, there's a script and you already know the outcome. And I thought, we don't know the outcome of, uh, of, of this. Because by the time they evacuated us, there became what's you know, known as the fog of war. So there were reports that the Capitol had been hit right. um, and that the State Department yep, had been hit. And um, to, so to, to make a long story a little bit shorter, I mean, I ended up hailing a, a, a well, actually, I went in, <laughs> at a, I think it was a, a phone store on K Street, and I called my wife. Cindy, um, just let her know uh, the cellular transmission was not not good. And so we were listening to WMAL, which is a local station here, and I was hearing all of these reports, State Department, uh, supposedly there was a fire on the mall, uh, the Capitol had been hit. And I remember thinking, this feels like I'm in a shooting gallery. Uh, It wasn't a sense of panic. How do you get out? How do you, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. It was just like trying to make sense of it all. I ended up hailing a cab, uh, getting home. I I saw as as I crossed one of the bridges, I live in McLean, Virginia, seeing the smoke in the Pentagon uh, rising. So, you know, that that morning was somewhat disorienting because at that point, um, it, it was a feeling that you knew that that, that our enemies, whoever our enemies were, they knew what they were doing to us, but we didn't know what they were doing to us. I, we didn't know when these attacks would stop, how many more there were. Um, we were scattered. I came home. Mike went home. Several of the speechwriters ended up at a building at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a, a, a think tank well-known in, in Washington. So we were all scattered. And then we began to sort of, you know, collect our, our, our communicate. Um, President Bush as you may recall, he, he took he was in Florida that morning. Uh, he took off once it was clear that the second attacks on Air Force One, and he was sort of flying over all around the country. First, they they landed him at, at the suggestion of of the Secret Service at Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, then moved him to Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska. He was getting agitated. He wanted to return very very much. Um, Cheney and the Secret Service and pretty much everybody else said, look, until we know what's going on here, intelligence agencies, we got to keep you away. We don't want to lose you um, as well as the people we're losing in, in, uh, in New York. But finally, he gave the order to come to come back. He arrived at Andrews Air Force Base at 630 and he gave a speech uh, at 830 uh, that night, which was fine. It was not a particularly memorable speech. It wasn't a particularly good speech, but it was, I think, good enough. Um, but it was important um, just to probably in that moment, as important as anything, just to see him. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. To see him and his earlier remarks that were said, they were through kind of grainy photographs of these air force bases. I think the one in Nebraska. And so it it sort of calmed things down at, um, at that point to, to have him back and to sort of put in perspective or the beginning of putting a frame around what was, what was, uh, what was happening, but there was just the whole, um, sheer, the sheer shock of the day, this kind of uncoiling horror, as you saw first, the, the, the planes hit the buildings and then the buildings fall and people jump, jump to their, uh, to their death. Um, so it was a, it was a very difficult day. And of course, when you're in the white house, there's the added feeling of a sense of 
I guess, duty or responsibility, which is, uh, you know, you, you have to try and figure out what to do in light of this. And you're sort of walking around almost in the dark at first. Let me ask you this question. You said at 903, the second plane hits and, and you sort of had this realization that, oh, wow, we are under attack. And then at 945, the White House compound is evacuated. At what point in that intervening period did you first think, not only are we under attack, is the country, did you think, I am personally potentially sitting in one of the, the, the biggest targets. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't go through my mind too much other than when I was told when I was at 17th and Pennsylvania Avenue, um, interestingly. And that was, that was when I was just looking up at the sky and I was just wondering what's, you know, what's next. Obviously I knew because they evacuated us and because of all the other chatter that we were, that we were hearing that there were targets and the White House was an obvious target, um, but um, but I, I I didn't really think too much about it. It was as I said, it was more it was a slightly detached feeling, a little bit of um, of uh, kind of wonder at what what is it exactly that's that's uh, that's unfolding and trying to get a hold of it, trying to put it within a frame to think it through. It's just the way I'm sort of hardwired in terms of as, as a personality, which is what are the next steps that you have to do, given what one is facing, you know, what do you have to do in the immediate term and the middle term and the longer term? And there, there of course, it was very much in, in the immediate term. It is interesting when I when I called my mom later and, and told her, and I was sort of unmoved later by it when it turned out that the plane that went down in Tanksville, Pennsylvania, the Flight 93, um, at that point, they didn't know if it was if it was a weapon for the White House or the Capitol, and I had mentioned that to my mom, and she began to weep um, because she thought that that you know that plane could have if it, if those people courageous people had not brought it down, it would have hit the White House. I think that they later thought found out from Taliban sources that it would have uh, it would have struck the, the Capitol if if possible. Some point in the the, the morning, uh, you say that the the speech writing team was was um, spread out around the city and beyond, and you understood that you had a job to do. You had you had you knew the president was going to have to speak. You know that his words, um, either that day or in the coming days, were were likely to be very important. Uh, how did that process begin? And did you? How quickly did you know? that there would be a big speech? Yeah, that's a good question. The process didn't unfold particularly smoothly on 9-11 just because of the logistics, if you will, because everybody was scattered. Karen Hughes, had, uh, who was at that point the director of communications, she took the lead on the speech at that time. So the way it, it worked, at least from my perspective, is Mike was the chief speech writer. I would feed him through the conversations that we had, thoughts, right? So we would just have these conversations. We, I don't even recall that the speechwriting team in general got together. I was just dealing with, with Mike. And, you know, the f- first thing that the conversations was, I, I remember, which is, is the president coming back or not? 
And when's he coming back? And he, you know, does he need to come back or not? So there were those early, those conversations sort of late in the morning, I guess, early in the afternoon. Then when it was clear that he was going to make his way back, it was that he's going to give a speech. And then, I, you know, I think Mike probably funneled some stuff, maybe even a draft to Karen. Uh, but we were on such a such a tight timeline that, you know, Karen took it and and uh, I'm not even sure how her speech looked compared to whatever draft that we sent, probably somewhat different. Um, and uh, so that was a, that was kind of chaotic. And I, I should say just as a as a uh, backdrop, chaos was not something that was known within the, the George W. Bush White House He's a very organized person. And certainly from the speech writing side of things. You know, you would normally, for important speeches, have everything buttoned down and done much in advance of the speech. He did not like changes at the end. And if you were going to make a change, you had a high bar to clear. So this was very unlike that. It, But the next day when we came in, so this then is September 12th, there it's just a sense of everything begins anew. I mean, everything, of course, is wiped off the, 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 the schedule and the calendar. And then you've, you've got so many different elements of what has to be done, right? There's the rhetorical side, which obviously concerned us it was within our, our bailiwick as, as speech writers. But, but there's the military side. Um, and then there's trying to get the, the entire government on a war footing. And that's not just defense and, and, you know, physical defense of the country, which was the first priority, but there's the legal side and the financial side and the intelligence tools. There was a sense of who is it that did this to us? We've got to find that out. Uh, when does the president speak? Who does he reach out to? Members of Capitol Hill, Giuliani was mayor of New York, Pataki was governor of New York. That was the main main uh, target, of course, but not the only one. You had the Pentagon. Where does the president go? What, what point does he go? When does, how does he address the country? Uh, and in what forms? Um, the way it, it, it turned out for us, Steve, is, you know, I felt like we were a little off balance. The president didn't quite have his footing, I would say, you know, Monday, Tuesday. I recall actually having a conversation with a, with a, a wonderful uh, academic, Gene Beth, Gail Stang, uh, who was at the University of Chicago, and uh, and it had been that Thursday when when President Bush had a conversation with, he had just gotten off the phone with Governor Pataki and Mayor Giuliani, and he was asked by, uh, it may have been a Reuters reporter, but I don't I don't recall exactly about what he was feeling and his emo- and and his emotions at that moment, and his eyes began to fill up with tears. And he spoke about the duties that he had. And remember, Jean wrote me and said that that something changed for her kind of in that moment. And then, of course, Friday, September 14th was a really important day. There were two things that happened that day. He gave a speech at the National Cathedral, which was a short, relatively short speech, about 15 minutes. Um, It had an audience of former presidents and and dignitaries. It was, a, it was an important set of remarks. And, and what President Bush wanted to do in those remarks was uh, several things. He, he wanted to um, express grief for the morning. He wanted to talk about uh, the compassion of God, even in the midst of sorrow and grief, and to signal to the country that, uh, that we would respond to what had happened. 
Um, and that, that speech was, was both the setting and I think, and I think the language of the speech was, was important. Then he went to New York that afternoon and that was where he had his uh, famous moment on the bullhorn where he was standing in the rubble with the, with the, uh, NY, uh, FD fire department person and, and the, they couldn't hear him. And he said, I can hear you. That I think was a kind of important moment for for us and the country, where where it was a sense that we're very much in control and we're beginning to find the right pitch in terms of how to deal with them. And then the following morning, uh, President Bush up at Camp David had a basically a war cabinet meeting uh, with Powell, Rumsfeld, you know, Condi Rice, Steve Hadley, and and George Tenet and and, and others. When you're somebody who has a, uh, a deep appreciation of American history, as you're living these moments from that moment on the morning of September 11th at 9.03 when the second plane hit and there was a realization that we were under attack, through that first week that you've guided us uh, through here, when did you recognize on a personal level that, that this was a hinge moment? in American history, that this was not a, you know, sort of a day that we would move on from and then we would be back to talking about education in three months. Like, when was it obvious that this was not only something that would shape, uh, you know, this period, you know, that that fall, that not only shape the Bush presidency, but really would shape the American republic? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think pretty pretty soon that, that day, uh, the president um believed that th- that day almost in that moment actually uh, the moment that the second plane hit you know people may or may not remember but it that it was an incredible sort of 77 minutes because it was not just the two tray towers but it was four planes that, that hit three targets um the pentagon the two tray towers and 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 then the one that went down in eastern pennsylvania so that that kind of 77 minutes was so vivid uh, and so violent um, and almost so un- unprecedented and just in its nature that you kind of knew that day, but the president had conveyed to us, I don't think he, he declared, uh, I'd have to go back actually and read the, the speech on September 11th. I think he didn't, he decided not to declare we were at war officially or rhetorically, but certainly he knew that and, I, and we knew that and when you go, you'll remember this, Steve, when President Bush took the, he ran as a domestic policy president and very much his inaugural speech was focused on, on sort of the character of the country, unity because of the, the controversy over the 2000 election of Florida, how close that was. So we had, we had all understood that he was going to be a domestic policy president. Um, and when you go from, from that in particular to knowing it's a wartime president, it's a wartime president in the context of having been attacked, not, not a war of your own choosing. Um, you just know that, that, uh, that everything has, uh, you know, everything's has, has changed at least for us. And, and, and 
as I said, that, that morning, that Wednesday morning when we came in, you know, everything was wiped out and there was this beginning of, this is almost sort of de novo. This is beginning right. anew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, from that moment, from those early moments, obviously um, there were, there were many decisions uh, that the president made to put the country on world footing. Many of them later proved controversial. Um, and I've been struck as I've spent the the better part of this week and, and last week looking back on 9-11 and what followed at the, the, the sense in which um, history or those writing the history, at least at this moment, um, don't necessarily have an appreciation for, it's, it's hard to capture the context for the decisions at the time. And this may be because I'm, I'm broadly sympathetic to the decisions that the, that the president made. Um, but it seems to me that the, that the kind of revisionist history that we've seen that's becoming, seems to be conventional wisdom almost now, is this was all an overreaction. Um, you know, you look back and boy, we didn't need to do this and we didn't need to do this. And look, we haven't been attacked for 20 years. So, so things are, are fine. Um, there's a, a piece from Garrett Graff in, in the Atlantic. And I want to just read you a, a short passage of it um, because I think it kind of captures this critique. He writes, the United States as both a government and a nation got nearly everything about our response wrong on the big issues and the little ones. The global war on terror yielded two crucial triumphs. The core Al-Qaeda group never again attacked the American homeland, and bin Laden, its leader, was hunted down and killed in a stunningly successful secret mission a decade after the attacks. But the U.S. defined its goals far more expansively. And by almost any other measure, the war on terror has weakened the nation, leaving Americans more afraid, less free, more morally compromised, and more alone in the world a day that initially created an unparalleled sense of unity among Americans has become the backdrop for ever widening polarization. Um, I'm guessing that doesn't quite track with your recollection of the decision-making and your understanding of what followed. Do you have a response to that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, hyperbolic and, too melodramatic, among other things, and I think it's wrong in in, in key key uh, key respects. Uh, I mean, I think it, it attributes both too much and too little to the so-called war on 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 terror. Um, too much in the sense that saying that sort of everything that that we have now, we're you know we're we're we're, we're less free and more polarized, and so all goes back to 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 the to the war on terror, um, at, as if almost everything that, that's gone wrong between now and 20 years ago is somehow can be ascribed. It sounds a little bit like, you know, if you're, if you're a hammer, every problem is a nail. Uh, yeah, it's a bit so, reductionist, I'd say. Yeah, I, I would say so, so uh, too. Um, uh, and I think it, it dramatically understates what was actually achieved. I mean, it wasn't an accident uh, that we weren't attacked for, 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 for 20 years. And that, that, as I said earlier, the entire country, went on a war footing, which, uh, which uh, kept that from happening. And just to your earlier point, Steve, it, 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 it's really true. I mean, you, you go back, uh, and I do this too, if I'm not part of the, of the history of a particular time, 
things get reduced to single sentences and, and the nuances and the subtleties and the texture of any given moment in time is, is lost. But when you're actually there, it's slightly different. Um, and if you were in the white house, um, after nine, uh, 11, you know, you would have known that there was incredible chatter from the intelligence agencies. I don't think that there's a single person in a responsible position, either the you know, Department of Defense or the or the intelligence agencies, uh, that would have thought that we weren't going to be hit and hit much harder. And that was what the chatter was. I think there was more chatter about a, 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 a very bad attack, worse than what happened in 9-11. There was more of that after 9-11 than before. And, you know, if you listen to people like George Tenet and others, there was an almost certainty that we were going to be hit. And then you're in the White House uh, and other branches of government, and you don't really know what hits you. You don't quite know what you don't know. All you do know is that you've 3,000, almost 3,000 of your fellow citizens have died uh, and buildings were hit and we were extremely vulnerable. And you have to try and put the entire federal government on a war footing with no runway um, and with no real textbook that you can pull off the, uh, the shelf and say, you know, this is exactly what, what you have to do. That's a huge undertaking. You don't get everything right. You don't calibrate everything perfectly. You never do in any event, in any area of life. You certainly don't do it in government. Um, but I found in government that, you know, uh, well, one thing is that my IQ was 50 points higher the day before I went into government. It was 50 points higher the day <laughs> I left government because decisions are a lot easier to make when you're in the peanut gallery and you're watching how things unfold. And then if they go poorly, you know, all, all of these really smart people sit around and say, how could they have been so foolish? But often when those very smart people go into government themselves of any administration, they find out that Life is a theater of vicissitudes, as John Adams says. There's a lot that you can't contain or control or predict. And when you're in the White House, uh, I mean, I was struck by this. I was there for seven years, which is you're asked to make often extremely consequential decisions, very often on limited information, uh, in many circumstances on a timeline that you wouldn't prefer, without knowing what all of the contingencies are. Uh, but you have to act. You don't have you don't have the luxury of waiting uh, as a commentator, which I am now, and seeing how these things you know unfold. And then when it becomes obvious, to try and say in elegant words what's completely obvious. Um, so it's just a different it's a different uh, different cast of of uh, of mind. But um, look, I, I think the the, the, the achievements of President Bush, one of them, is that we weren't attacked when everybody thought we 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 would. And I think for whatever problems that there might have been or, or imperfections there were, that um, that he protected the country uh, and protected it in all of these different uh, areas. And you know, the other thing I'll say is is that uh, at the time, if you go back. Uh, Democrats uh, were almost universal in their support for Bush at the um, at the time. Whether it was uh, the uh, enhanced interrogation techniques and waterboarding, which the Democratic leadership knew and supported at the time, or certainly the war in Afghanistan, in which every member of Congress, all 535, with the exception of one person, supported that war, 
or Joe Biden, who 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 uh, in the in the aftermath of 2001 talked about how important nation building uh, was, uh, and and uh, you know was was uh, was was quite uh, you know uh, the the martial warrior at that time in terms of what we should do now. President Biden's forgotten what Senator Biden said and believed and voted and acted at that time. Um, but it's important. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you don't go back and critique what was wrong or pretend that you got everything right. It just means that those things, you know, have to happen, you know, within 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 a context. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I obviously would, would would have some disagreements with that uh, essay. So if, if you and I had had a conversation in the middle of that national unity that you just described uh, on, on a policy level, and I think on, on, on in sort of a heartfelt way, it's kind of an intangible, non-intellectual way, there was this kind of nation, national unity um, with some notable exceptions. If we had had a conversation then and I were to describe to you the extreme polarization that we're living through today, 20 years on, would that have seemed unlikely to you? That's the first part of my question. The second part of my question, let's, if the, the kind of conventional wisdom uh, as, as expressed in the Garrett Graff pieces is reductionist, there can be little question that th- those attacks and the response to them played some role in this polarization. How do you think about that today, looking back 20 years? Yeah, on, on your first question, I, I would be s- surprised um, and dismayed <laughs> and, uh, and probably a little bit shot by the, by the divisions in the country. I mean, I think they go deeper even than polarization. I mean, there's a, there's a level of antipathy and hatred for fellow citizens uh, right now, that's really unlike anything that I've seen in, in my lifetime. And I think it's pretty rare in American history. Now, you know, people have to be careful about romanticizing um, history, and often you'll, you'll you'll hear people you know talk about the good old days of when you know Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would go out and have a beer, you know, after five five p.m. That is a little romanticized. I mean, if you go back and read what Tip O'Neill said about Ronald Reagan, that was some some pretty nasty stuff. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, uh, and you know. The, Politics by its nature is divisive. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about people with competing ideas on important issues who have differences. And, and, and so what you try and do in a country is, is, is debate those differences within certain parameters um, of, of, you know, hopefully some degree of civility um, and, and, yeah, and respect. But it, it can be intense and it always has been. But the degree to which the, 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 the polarization um, it has happened now and, 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 and the, the divisions and, and the uh, as I said, the, the hatred and the rage for, for, for people is, is extraordinary. And that has, I think, a whole set of complicated issues that led to that moment. A lot of, I, I guess, sort of tributaries feeding into this roiling river. Um, so, the, and those things happen, I think, quite apart from any individual president or any individual action, although various presidents and, and actions contributed to them. But I think that there were also some deep, deeper currents that that happened. And I think Donald Trump was 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 a key moment because he, in a sense, sort of val- validated uh, a certain kind of style in politics, which I think is deeply harmful. Um, that always existed, but was on the fringe. But when 
Trump became first nominee, and then particularly when he became president. Uh, and and my own view is that he's a sociopath. And so when you have a sociopath as president, a lot of bad things happen to the fabric of a country, to the to the ethos of a country. And I think that's that's happened. In terms of you know whether the decisions that that happened on not you know a nine eleven and uh, and and that. The, flowed from 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 the Bush presidency as a, as a contributing force uh, factor in in the, the the differences and disagreements and polarization in the country sure uh, they they uh, they did um, I think Afghanistan less than Iraq um, because in Afghanistan we we, we were attacked um, and, um, and and they contributed I I don't think individual decisions if they're polarizing or per se wrong, I've never believed that. I've never even been against polarization in general. It depends on what the cause of the polarization is. I mean, Lincoln was a polarizing figure. The civil rights movement, Martin Luther King was a polarizing figure. If you're a fan of Bobby Kennedy, you know, he was a polarizing figure. Uh, FDR was. A lot of the most important figures in American history, indeed in world history, turned out that that Jesus was a polarizing figure too. Um, so it depends on what is, is it polarization in the cause of justice or is it polarization in the cause of injustice or is it polarization, uh, you know, unnecessarily so for, for small, for small issues. Um, you know, the wars that we were a part of uh, did lead to the divisions of the country um, because the wars didn't go uh, particularly well, and I'm happy to go through and in, in, in where they did go well, it didn't. Uh, the short version of, of of Iraq, if I give you my sort of 60 second arc of it, is um, that we we wouldn't. Uh, I certainly would not have supported war. I don't think most people would have supported war if we knew that Saddam Hussein didn't have weapons of mass destruction. It was a massive intelligence failure, which has been looked into by various bipartisan commissions. Uh, it was our responsibility because we believe the intelligence, but the reality is that Democrats that got the same intelligence believed it, and even countries throughout the world that didn't agree with the war in Iraq, the German intelligence agencies, French and others, believed he had weapons of mass destruction. But the war itself was 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 based on a false premise, so it wouldn't have gone to war. Having gone to war, I, the, the actual major combat operations went ex- extremely well. And Saddam Hussein was deposed in, in a matter of several weeks. But then the fa- so-called phase four period of the war, where uh, things dissolved into chaos, was a horrible period. And we bear a, a, a significant responsibility for having had the wrong strategy. We had what they kind of refer to as a light footprint strategy. It wasn't an insane approach, but it was a wrong one. And we were, we were much too late in making the adjustment. But the adjustment was made in 2007, led by David Petraeus uh, on the military side and Brian Crocker as, as the ambassador. And um, the war turned around and the so-called surge, which was not just a surge in the troops, but it was a new counterinsurgency strategy, turned around Iraq in a stunningly short period of time. I mean, by the time you got to, the, the, the surge was announced in January, I think January 10th of 2007. By the time you got to September, Iraq was, was much more pacified as a country it's to the point that by the time that Biden and, and, and Obama withdrew our troops in 2011, they were stating that Iraq was, you know, a, a stable, uh, country. Um, so, uh, I think by the time that that 
that we left, you know, Iraq was, was, was certainly fragile, but we had reversed the worst errors of the war. But by that time, the public was just sick and tired of the war. And, uh, and you know, the, the hopes of Afghanistan and Iraq certainly weren't met. Um, and it turned out to be much more difficult. And that led to the polarization uh, of, of the country, but it certainly wasn't the, the only reason. And I think if those wars had never happened, we would probably be more or less where we, where we are, um, as a nation, uh, right now. Looking forward to tomorrow, September 11th, 2021, um, the Taliban is back in control in Afghanistan. They're planning to formally, um, announce or, or formally um, impose a new government that not only includes, but is led by several figures who were prominent in the Taliban in 2001, who worked with Al-Qaeda to lay the groundwork for the 9-11 attacks, who uh, are responsible for the deaths of Americans after the 9-11 attacks um the campaign in afghanistan pakistan uh, did successfully eliminate osama bin laden but i think by virtually any measure al-qaeda and the global jihadist movement is stronger today as i say the taliban is is in control almost certainly the u.s will face a greater national security threat from the AFPAC region in the months and years to come than we have over the past 20 years. Is there any way to look at the original 9-11 war, the war in Afghanistan, and conclude anything other than that it was lost? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, 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 there's the war was lost. I think it was lost uh, by the decision by President Biden to withdraw and, and essentially to decide to to intentionally take actions to lose the war to pull us out of of Afghanistan. Um, I think it's a terrible legacy for him. I think it's a terrible mistake. I think it's bad for the national security of the United States for the reasons that you articulated. I think just as a humane matter, um, as a matter of human rights, um, it was uh, it was a big, big mistake. Um, and there's going to be a lot of human wreckage that resulted from it. And it's it's painful. Um, it's painful because it didn't have to be this way. I understand the argument that America can't uh, can't solve every problem in the world. But when you say you can't solve every problem in the world, doesn't mean you can't solve any problem in the world. And Afghanistan, for the reasons we talked about, uh, was a war that we got involved with and we had to respond. After all, they were giving sanctuary to the terrorists that hit us. So the question became at that point, do we just hit Afghanistan, smash the Taliban and leave, or do we try and stay? For national, for national security reasons, to, to keep our intelligence and, and a military presence, but also to help those people. Um, you know, one of the things that f I find frustrating and unfortunate is this notion that the sacrifices that were made by the people in particular in, in, in uniform who served in Afghanistan, that it was for nothing. It actually wasn't for nothing. 
Um, Afghanistan, it wasn't Switzerland, that's for sure. Um, and it had a lot of struggles and a lot of problems. Um, and it underscored, I suppose, a, a, you know, a, a Burkean understanding that all of us should have had, that I should have had more, which is the capacity to change cultures and, 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 and nations is a massive undertaking and very, very difficult. Having said that, by any metric of human development uh, and human rights, Afghanistan is better after 20 years than it was uh, at the time that we went to war. You know, 40% of the people in Afghanistan colleges were women, 25% of the parliament. Uh, the Taliban, as you know, and have written and eloquently spoken about, is just a awful, brutal, savage regime. And they hurt people and they delight in hurting people and they delight in hurting and killing a lot of people. And they're going to do it again. I was on a call yesterday with somebody, uh, with, with, uh, with a woman who has a lot of, done a lot of work in Afghanistan. And I said, what is most heartbreaking to you uh, about what's unfolding? And she spoke about um, several things uh, that had been utterly wiped away. One was a, a, two hospitals that were created uh, in which the doctors in Afghanistan had been trained by Americans. Um, and that they, these people stayed there through all of the hard and difficult years to try and save lives. The infant mortality rate in Afghanistan got much better because of efforts by these people. And that hospital's now been shuttered. And then she talked about um, a French couple who had opened schools for girls in, uh, in Afghanistan. And that that's now been, been, you know, been wiped away. And about the people who, who, are, who are left behind. Um, now, I understand the argument if people say, look, you know, we weren't going to win this war and, you know, it's the forever war and we want to leave. I get that argument. It's not, a, it's not a crazy argument. The question, of course, in these things is always, what, is, is the cost higher, uh, of leaving higher than the, uh, the, the cost of staying? You know, what's the cost-benefit analysis? And I think given uh, the situation that we had, clearly it was worthwhile. It was in our security interests, human rights interests, to, to stay there, the capacity that, that we did. Um, but even if you don't agree with, with that, um, people, sh particularly people on the left, um, who pride themselves on, 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 on their dedication to human rights um, and care for the, for the vulnerable and the, and, and the dispossessed, the people living in the shadows of society, um, they shouldn't look the other way uh, in knowing what is now coming. Um, if you were a liberal who was deeply pained by the separation of uh, children from their parents on the southern border during the Trump years, as you and I were, um, then you should see what's happening in Afghanistan and understand that that is a lot worse just in terms of the sheer, sheer human misery that's about to unfold. And the fact that it's unfolding on the people of Afghanistan primarily, but not exclusively because there's still Americans there, doesn't make it any less of a human tragedy. Um, and you know, too often in politics, people become, and human lives become sort of chess pieces on a board that are used in, in these um, 
political and partisan wars. So it's not really an, you know, uh, empathy or sympathy for people who are suffering. It's empathy and sympathy for people who the other side is making suffer. So you can use them to make a broader, you know, a broader point. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to see. Obviously I wish the Afghanistan war had ended differently. Um, I wish that more progress had been made. I'm certain that we made errors. Uh, you know, 2006 was a key moment when I think because of our attention to Iraq, that Pakistan began to give safe haven to the Taliban and that helped revivify them. Um, so we, we made, we made our, our share of mistakes. Um, and you know, you always do that in war, but nonetheless, uh, they shouldn't happen and there are costs to it. But, um, I, I do think that the decision by President Biden to, to leave was unnecessary. And I think it's one for reasons you articulated that we're going to come to, uh, to regret. But the sacrifices that the people made were not made in vain. They actually did make a difference. Pete, thanks for taking the time to uh, help put this all in context, to help remember uh, that awful day 20 years ago. And thanks for your candor. Thanks a lot, Stephen. It's, it's been a delight to be with you. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.